This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 15, Wolf's Reign, How Far to Paradise. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Xavier. Hey, how's it going? And also joining us this week from the YouTube channel Maison Otaku. Hi, folks. This is Justin from Maison Otaku. And this week, we are going to be talking about Wolf's Reign, a show that is fairly popular and fairly acclaimed, at least back when I was getting into anime, like truly getting into it back in 2006. It came out in 2003 by Studio Bones, roughly around the same time they were making this other anime series. I don't know if either of you guys heard of it, but it was called like, what was it name? Uh, I think it was called Full Metal Alchemist. Uh, don't know if any of you guys have heard of that. <laughs> Full Metal Alchemist, who hasn't? Oh. I think I've seen something about that one, but couldn't place it. Eh, never heard of it either. The show was directed by Tensai Okamura, who has directed a few notable things since then. He's directed Darker Than Black, Blue Exorcist, the first season of Seven Deadly Sins, a World Conqueror's Vesda plot, Kuromukuro, Kuro and... This is a bit relevant since it just came out on Blu-ray. He directed the Stink Bomb segment from Memories. And for those of you who grew up with the show, he's the director of Metabots. I actually found it most interesting that uh, he managed to pry an episode of Yawara into his career. Because, you know, that's working on one of probably the more influential uh, sports anime of the late 80s. Still have yet to watch my set that I got at like a Saturday matinee for like 10 bucks or something. Or was that from Book Off? I don't know. Um, the writer for this was Keiko Nobumoto, most famous for writing Cowboy Bebop, Tokyo Godfathers, Macross Plus, and she's worked on a couple of other works by Shinichiro Watanabe. So, with the basics out of the way, what's the premise of Wolf's Reign? Oh... The premise. The premise is the world's going to end. And... And the, and the wolves want nothing to do with that, so they decide to GTFO to a place called Paradise. Which isn't a bad uh, idea. Personally, I like to find it nearby a dashboard light, all due in respects to the passing of Jen Steinman. The only way they can get there, though, is with the help of this flower girl named Cheza. Yeah. Unfortunately, they reach many obstacles. Some people don't like wolves in this world and want to, like, hunt them down. And that's, as Sonic would say, no good. <laughs> the, the world laid out for the uh, series has down-on-their-luck humans, decadent nobles, all manner of things that you'd expect at the end of the world. Yeah, I'd say that sums it up about right. 
So, I want to know, where did you guys first hear of Wolf's Reign, and what were your initial impressions? Who wants to go first? Uh, I've heard of Wolf's Reign in passing, but never got around to it. Because I couldn't... I don't think I could find a place to watch it. Yeah, probably. But then, like, it was announced it was going to be, it was streaming on Funimation, which was convenient when you called up and asked me to watch the show to prepare for this podcast. I was like, well, hey, that's convenient because Funimation got it now. I can actually get around to watching this. I was excited. For me, it was interesting. It was around the time uh, New Type USA had rolled out here in the States, and you could pick it up on newsstands. And it was one of the, you know, one of the cover items that it was going to be coming to the States soon. Uh, I believe it was Bandai that was distributing it at the time. And, you know, they showed all the artwork and they did this whole blurb about how Studio Bones is the next big studio. Which, I mean, with all the stuff that was on their boards at the time, Full Metal Alchemist, Wolf's Reign, Razafon... They were looking pretty strong. And then uh, not long after that, you got the news that, okay, and it's got a Studio Ocean dub, and it's going to be on Adult Swim late nights. So I gave it a whirl. Ah, uh, New Type USA. Uh, that takes me back to the days when I would buy single-disc anime from ADV Films. And uh, also, you are correct, Justin, it was Bandai that distributed it. Generally speaking, Studio Ocean was always a good indicator that uh, Bandai had their hand in it. Well, I I hate to disappoint you, or maybe it's not a disappointment, but this is not a Studio Ocean dub. Really? Yeah, I could have sworn it was, especially because it had, you know, like, uh, Brad Swale, I think, was in there somewhere. You're thinking of something else. It must be. Hang on a tick. I may have a cross thread in there. We'll talk about the dub at a later point. But as for me... I I, like many others, first heard of Wolf's Reign because it ran commercials on Adult Swim. And the commercials that they ran for Wolf's Reign were quite gripping. They were these, it was this very intense commercial with a lot of fast cuts, very dark industrial music, or one that's nothing but a drum and chant track. It sounded like um, Inuit chanting. Oh, bloody hell, I think I remember that one. And it really hooked me. But because I was still kind of prudish at the time, I did not like how violent the show looked, and I didn't like all the blood. And I know it's kind of funny, Inuyasha and Ghost in the Shell standalone complex, those were okay. But Wolf's Reign? That's a bit over the line, though. Don't you think? But I didn't get around to watching Wolf's Reign until several years later. I'd heard about its reputation and how well-received it was, but I wanted to see whether or not it was worth the hype if it truly lived up to its expectations or if it holds up after all these years. And so, thanks to the Bandai Anime Legends set that I still own to this day, I was able to watch it, I finished it, I watched it twice now, and, well, we'll talk about how I feel down the line. But needless to say, I liked it at first, but, well, I'll get to my thoughts once we get into the meat and potatoes. But first... As always, we start with the animation, and there's no easy way to put this. Wolf's Reign looks dated. Yeah. Product so, some animation doesn't age as well in this show. But eh, it's sort of impressive for the time. 
that's how I sort of feel about it. Like there was one scene where all the wolves were running alongside the car, and I thought the animation there looked really phenomenal. For me, whenever you're talking wolf's rain animation, you're practically almost talking about two different phenomena. Because on one hand, you have sequences that are composed and fluid and where you just feel like here you have this young studio really reaching out to show what they can do. And then you have sequences where they're realizing, oh, right, we don't actually have enough money to do this over 30 episodes. You know me personally, you know that I kind of have a hard time watching a lot of anime made from the late 90s, early 2000s that utilizes that early digital animation. I'm sorry, but that stuff does not age well at all. I do not exaggerate when I say that I have an easier time getting through shows made in the 70s than I do the early 2000s. Probably because a lot of studios, when making the transition, had a real hard time adjusting to this new technology. But as dated as Wolf's Reign may look, I dare say that Wolf's Reign is one of the better looking of the early digitally animated shows. Do you agree? I'd agree. Mm -hmm. From an art standpoint, it looks fantastic. Just static art, it looks fantastic. Yeah, I know what you mean. In, in motion, like, it seems kind of standard in some shots. But, like, standing still, the artwork is really great. And there aren't a whole lot of moments, I will say, that stand out from an animation standpoint. Like, maybe a handful of segments where, like, they were really trying to do something there. For as experimental a premise and concept as they were working with, the visuals were not nearly as experimental as they could have been. Yeah, for... I guess a show about wolves that takes place in like winter. I feel like they could have done more in terms of animation, maybe something on the fur or the snow. But I guess the animation just wasn't there at the time, especially for like television shows. I'd have to agree with you. You almost feel like they picked winter because gray and flat and white are very easy to do. And I feel that that limit or restriction is sort of what helps the show. Because usually when you have difficulty animating something, you try to hide your shortcomings. And in that regard, I think that Wolf's Reign succeeds. Because all the colors in this are very drab and very washed out. And it really works with the sort of end-of-the-world aesthetic that they're going with. That's true. It makes the few pops of color really draw the eye. Okay. Whether it's... The purples that always seem to work with Cheza, or it's the bright golds whenever a noble appears. There's a lot of keying to uh, moments. But yeah, I do agree that there are some moments where it does not look good in motion. In particular, there's one sequence where the wolves are fighting a bunch of soldiers, and the sequence is that they jump down, and you see like a motion that's made to look like they're slashing these soldiers but none of their arms moved to imply that there was a slashing that took place. So, like, they just jump down, slash, and then they jump away. I think, like, you can tell when they actually do try to, like, animate some things. Because 
like I said before, the one scene, I think it was in the OVAs, where the wolves are running next to, like, the car. It's at the beginning of the episode, and it looked really beautiful. It actually caught me by surprise. I'm like, wow, they really stepped up their game for this one. And character animation for smaller moments seemed to be reasonable. I mean, we're not talking, like, Osamu Dezaki levels of hair flowing and so forth, but you still had movement, you still had some expressiveness. It was there. There was certainly some care and detail to character animation. Action animation, though, on the other hand, Xavier's got it knocked down and you've got it knocked down. There was anything that was actual action in this action show was stiff. But compare, you know, the action in Wolfstring to the action in the original 2003 Fullmetal Alchemist. I think that was the moment where Bones sort of got this whole digital animation thing down. But that's just speculation on my part. A lot of that does come down to, I mean, there are so many steps involved in animation, you know, storyboarding and so forth. And it's hard to pin down, okay, so who was it that had the tough time with the technology? Was it simply that the software at the time wasn't capable of what they wanted to put out? Or did they not have the understanding of it? Or did they just not have the staff to pull it off? I would like to think that it's a mix of all three. One last comment that I have is that you mentioned the character designs and the character artwork. And that is thanks to one Toshihiro Kawamoto. He did the character designs for this, and he is a fairly established key animator and character designer. Uh, for you Gundam fans, he did character designs for Gundam 0083 and Gundam the 8th MS team. He's done character designs for things like Ghost Sick and Noragami and Blood Blockade Battlefront. He's been in this since like the late 80s, so this guy knows his stuff. Oh, Kawamoto has been an absolute ace for ages. And it's kind of funny because... Kawamoto character designs have long been sort of a Bandai, hey, and by the way, he did this ever since Cowboy Bebop hit big. Yeah, he did the character designs for Cowboy Bebop. How, how could I miss that? This is what happens when you don't write these things down for the format, people. I mean, Kawamoto's presence helps a ton, and his character designs work very well in this. And it's kind of interesting because it's one of the few times we've seen him work soft. Lots of times we've seen him come up with, you know, these really distinct character designs. He's very good at unique faces and unique facial structure. I mean, just look through the cast of 0083, from the high-set cheekbones of Gato to Ko's own slightly rounded, boyish looks. You know, he's that's what he does. He actually does faces, and often uh, fairly ethnic faces. But... They're also very frequently more stern and angular. This was him working almost as if he was peeking over... I don't want to say Iwatase's shoulder, but that's the first name that's coming to mind. I can see that. Also of note is that there are some cool mech designs in here that were provided by Shinji Aramaki. Mecha designer for things like Bubblegum Crisis, Megazone 2-3. Aramaki's a monster. The man's, the man's been on Ghost in the Shell for ages. The man's directed the Appleseed CGI movies. He's directed a ton of terrible CGI stuff since then. 
I will defend the Appleseed films as popcorn flicks. And that's probably closer to Shiro's goal than anything else, given that Shiro himself is a bit of a kook. But that's digressing. So with that, I think we've said enough about the animation. So let's move on to the soundtrack portion of our review. The music was done by Yoko Kano. I don't think I need to say anything more than that. Do you guys want to contribute anything? Well, I mean, our options are either heaping praise on a woman who is 100% unilaterally praised within the industry, or being wrong. Uh, Yeah, the the soundtrack was really phenomenal. I don't think we can all agree that, like, the Secret Garden was the best part. Just beautiful. Actually, after I finished the show, I looked up what song it was and on YouTube and listened on repeat for like half an hour because it was it was beautiful. And major props as well to, you know, Steve Conti on you know, that intro. That intro was really, really grabbing. I mean, catchy, but still moody and just a really nice piece that you almost wish the show had more of that energy. Stray is an iconic song. It sounds like something from Sting's solo career. I could see that. I most often almost throw out that it's very Sting, or you could also kind of put it, you know, it's very Peter Gabriel, like late period Peter Gabriel. That was the other connection I was going to make. The only other thing is, in terms of sound on the show, is the key music is particularly good, but it's also really nice to note that a lot of the dolly work that goes with the music, because you don't just have musical moments and action moments. There's a lot of moments where incidental noises are actually keyed into the beats of the music, and that's not something you get as often. It's definitely one of Yoko Kano's best soundtracks. Very moody, very atmospheric, very stark, kind of depressing at points. But I have my own little story to tell about Wolf's Rain because before I even knew about Wolf's Rain, I only knew a song off of the OST before I even bothered to glance at it. And that was the song Strangers. That's the song that plays when the wolves are running alongside the train in like episode six, I think it is. And I first heard this on a podcast all the way back in 2007 um, as part of the anime group Crazy Otaku. I don't know if it's still around anymore. God rest in peace to its founder, Ben Shodell. He's not with us anymore. But I heard the song Strangers, and I fell in love with it. It was beautiful. It was moody. It was atmospheric. I saw a ton of AMVs set to it. But that was my first run-in with Wolf's Rain. Not the anime, but the soundtrack. Also, if you ask me what my favorite song off the OST is, that honor would go to Face On. That's the one that plays during the shit's about to go down moments. I could play it during, like, say, a hockey fight, and it would still work in context. It was very much a good uh, a good amp-up piece. You're going to laugh, but I actually kind of like the, the little goofy musics that they'd play whenever uh, Toboy was kind of being boyish. I actually thought that they had a very nice kind of almost comical music for him. 
that I can't place the name of it on the OST. I apologize. But it was just one of those little pieces of character music, kind of like the Mahoshi Samba from the original Tenchi OAV, uh, OAV1 soundtrack. You know, just this sort of, you hear it and you're like, okay, this is a character who's got a little bit something different going on. So now we move on to the segment where I bore everybody reading off the voice cast and oh boy, this cast is stacked to say the least. In the lead role as our hero, Kiba, we have Mamoru Miyano in his first major anime role. This was not his debut, though. He played a side character in the Shin Megami Tensei Devil Kids anime. But Kiba is his first leading role. And needless to say, things would only go up for Mamoru Miyano from here. He would play many iconic characters that you all know and love. Just to name a few, he is perhaps most famous for being Light in Death Note, Rintaro Okabe in Steins Gate, and perhaps the performance of his career, he's Kotaro in Zombieland Saga. Yeah, but I don't like that he's the replacement voice for Takami Fujiwara. You can't sell me on that one. But then again, I'm very I'm not sold on Initial D Legend in the whole. Tsume is voiced by Kenta Miyake, the voice of All Might. He's also the voice of... Oh, God help me, I'm gonna butcher this pronunciation. It's been ages since I watched the few episodes of Overlord. He was Cositas in Overlord and Mohammed Abdul in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stardust Crusaders. Hige is voiced by Akio Suyama, most famous for being Ichiro Ogami in the Sakura Wars franchise. Toboe is voiced by Hiroki Shimawada. He's not done much. I think the thing that you would most recognize him for was that he was Ranmaru Mori in Sengoku Basara. Mayumi Asano plays Blue, who is Haku in Naruto, and the original voice of the titular Boogie Pop Phantom in the original Boogie Pop Phantom series, and Gasconia Rheingau in Van Dredd. Cheza is voiced by Arisa Ogasawara, most famous for being Haro and Soma Perrys in Gundam 00. She's also Panty in Panty and Stocking, and the Japanese voice of Kim Possible. Quent is played by the late, great Unsho Ishizuka, Jet Black in Cowboy Bebop, Gold Bowman in Macross Plus, and his longest-running role, he was Professor Oak in Pokemon prior to his passing. Jagura, our villainess, is voiced by Atsuko Tanaka, most famous for being the major in Ghost in the Shell. She is Caster in the Second Fate Stay Night series, and Sirene in Devilman Crybaby. And there are quite a few other notable seiyuu on the Japanese side, including Akio Otsuka, Mr. Solid Snake, Maya Sakamoto, frequent collaborator of Yoko Kano, Masaya Onosaka, the voice of Kid Muscle in the second Ultimate Muscle series, and Norio friggin' Wakamoto! He plays an owl in this series. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you, there really was a tremendous amount of talent arrayed on this show, and it's almost one of those things that you look at all the ingredients, you're like, this should be an all-time classic. But the standout seiyuu in this cast for me is the voice of our villain, Darsha. He is voiced by Takia Kuroda, aka the voice of Kiryu-chan! Yes, we've got the voice of Kiryu Kazuma from the Yakuza games as our villain. And 
every time he spoke on the Japanese side, I half expected him to knock down a bunch of thugs on the streets of Kamurocho, but that's just me talking. One can hope. I wish, although, ironically, Darsha, when he takes his mask off, he looks like Emo Goro Majima. I could see that. I could probably see that, at least. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. On the dub, this was an anime's joint, so if you see animes attached to a dub from around this time period, it's guaranteed to be good. And they brought out the big guns for this one. We've got... Johnny Young Bosch as Kiba, Crispin Freeman as Sume, Joshua Seth before his hiatus as Hige, Barbara Goodson as Toboe, Jessica Strauss as Blue, Kari Walgren as Cher, Bob Buckles as Hub, Tom Weiner as Quent, and Steve Frickin' Bloom as Darsha. And I forgot Mary Elizabeth McGlynn as Jagara. And you're leaving out the big one, at least for us Tenchi fans, Sherry Lynn, as the voice of Cheza. Sherry Lynn, of course, was Sasami's voice, still is Sasami's voice for as often as they dub her. And there's an all-star. Yeah, uh, when I watched this, uh, I kind of only did see the dub of for the first time. But you know what? The cast is stacked. I mean, you can't go wrong with Johnny Young Bosch and Crispin Freeman. Well, to repeat myself, you can't go wrong with Zero Limit slash Animes, because that studio, for their time, was sort of the premier anime dubbing studio for, like, high-quality dubs. So much talent got their start doing anime's work. And a lot of that is in this very dub. Oh, absolutely. The funneling of Bandai action figure money and television broadcast money resulted in professional work. And that's probably why the dub actors of the time got the notoriety they did that got them the positions as con headliners and so on that they were earning around that time. Not a bad performance in the lot. Then there is the other dub, which I'm now finding out exists. What? Was this an Animax joint? I'm only now learning about this. Oh, yeah. So I got curious and decided to scroll on the Wikipedia page, and it turns out, yes, there was an Animax dub for Wolf Rain. Oh. But I, I think we all know how Animax dubs go with these sorts of things. I'm going to play a clip from that Yu-Gi-Oh dub just to uh, demonstrate your point, Xavier. <sighs> wait, wait, this show's not over. You ain't seen nothing yet. I can take you any time I want. Don't even think about escaping! What a load of rubbish! It's bull, Yugi! You don't have to take his challenge! Yeah, don't do it, Yugi! This isn't a duel! It sounds like a lot of fun! I'll do it! Yugi! But on that bombshell, we've scratched the surface of what makes Wolf's Reign tick. Now we have to talk about the show as a whole. And I'm going to open up with my overall thoughts on Wolf's Reign. Let's start off with the positives. I love the atmosphere in Wolf's Reign. It's very bleak, very drab. There's just this overall sense of hopelessness that this really is the end of our world as we know it, that we're at the very end of civilization. 
and like the locations, the artwork, the designs, the settings really reflect this. And this sort of parlays into another point I want to talk about, and that is the show does some excellent world building, along with some really great scenery and allegories that hit close to home. The one scene that sort of stuck with me is the one where they go to the old Industrial Depot fortress, I think that's what it is, and the wolves see what are effectively a bunch of old, ragged sled dogs being whipped into pulling some heavy freight and are basically fed scraps, and one of them basically dies after pulling the sled. It's a powerful scene that sticks in my mind. It's a beautifully directed moment. That said, as much as I wanted to like Wolf's Reign, I was waiting for that moment where the show hit its stride. It was good to begin with, but I was waiting for it to hit that second gear and to just get truly going. And unfortunately, Wolf's Reign, outside of a few nice little bits of acceleration, it mostly just stays in first gear and doesn't really get beyond second. But I don't know, what, what do you guys think? Well, when I saw Wolf's Reign and I got like a feel for the premise, it reminded me of Kino's journey. Just wolves traveling from location to location. And I, I really liked the world building. As far as for like the deeper plot, with like the enemies and stuff it felt i guess kind of standard but i still enjoyed it and uh the ending i thought was really beautiful the way it ended albeit didn't feel complete but beautiful wolf's reign as far as how i felt about it you have this amazing world as you described that was created with a certain amount of care and a certain amount of attention with so many fantastic ideas and layouts, scenery, a tableau of hopelessness and of a world that was ready to end, that was welcoming its end. And for heaven's sake, they couldn't make up their minds what they were going to do with it. It was... To draw parallel, you have... Galaxy Express 3.9, which very much is about going from place to place and viewing allegories for the human condition. Uh, Xavier brought up Kino's journey, you know, Kino Nantabi. Same concept, going from place to place and witnessing allegories for the human condition and using characters who are somewhat removed from the human condition themselves to comment on it or expose a truth. Wolf's Reign doesn't have that much to say beyond, wow, these people are kind of awful. And that's where it falls apart the most, I think, because it could have done so much more. It had all the pieces to do so much more. And that's very frustrating to see as someone who wanted this show to succeed. I think if I wanted to draw a comparison, I'd also like to bring up Michiko and Hachin. 
another show about like trying to get to like a certain destination like both shows for like a lot of it seems episodic but there is is an end goal on who or what to get to i think michiko and hachin handled it a lot better keeping me invested i agree with you there xavier and i think that a big part as to why i have mixed feelings with wolf's reign can be boiled down to one sentence and that is the story progresses but the characters don't xavier you brought up kino's journey justin you brought up the galaxy express 39 kino does go to different places in that show Maytel and tetsuro go to different planets and discover allegories about the human condition but neither seems to undergo much of an arc. But in this case, it's not necessarily about fleshing out the character. It's more about having something to say about the human condition. Kino's journey had episodes that focused on themes of religion, democracy, the loss of innocence, and other things. The Galaxy Express 3.9 talks about the importance of our humanity versus machines. Wolf's Rain, meanwhile, wants to tell a story, but while our characters do go from place to place, it doesn't feel like it's a journey of sorts. And I think that a big part of that is down too. okay? If they want to do the allegorical, then the wolves could be much more mythic and much more... They could be more one note than they were and still be memorable and fantastic characters i mean for heaven's sake duke togo's has three personality traits and two of them are firing guns <laughs> but he's an immortal character by the same token you're also bringing up a very good point that okay if the story is about these wolves and their journey to paradise whatever that may be then it should be about what that journey means to them, why they're pursuing it. I mean, the pack assembles in a haphazard way, but we're not we're not told to show that that haphazard assembly means something to them, that, you know, well, this is who we are. We are motley. We are of all these different stripes. It never occurs to anyone to make a deal of that or to not make a deal of them, or to make a deal of the fact that they're not making a deal of it. Again, lots of good pieces, doing nothing with them. Yeah, story-wise, it seems like the wolves are together solely because they're wolves, and they have to go to paradise also because they're wolves. There's really nothing deeper to it than that. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are quite a few excellent stories built entirely upon a determined fate a fate that is inescapable hell that's the whole uh, you know, that's the whole underlying truth of kung fu hustle <laughs> is that no matter how much uh, stephen chow's character wanted to be a bad guy and to be a villain and to be a gangster he was destined to be a hero all of his life struggles are from his rejection of that. So the idea that the wolves are meant to go to paradise, okay, that can work. That can be a story 
do the wolves not want to go to paradise? Do, can the wolves not explain their need to go to paradise? Is this something that compels them or is this something that frightens them? No, that's just, uh, we got 30 episodes to fill. You bring up a good point, Justin, about the lack of motivation for them to get to paradise, because I swear to the heavens above, because so much of that dialogue is, where are we going, how far is paradise, what are we doing, why are we searching for paradise, and it's just that ad nauseum. We don't get any deep dives into just what drives the wolves. Like, we get glimpses into their past, and we get some semblance of backstory... But that's about it for them. Like, there's no real dedicated character arcs for the wolves. I'm gonna steal your bit, Justin, but I talked about this with you in direct message on Facebook, and you pretty much compared them to the Power Rangers. Yes. We have characters who are there to fulfill a particular personality trait. I mean, if we really want to break it down, Kiba and Sume are... Condor Joe and Ken the Eagle. Let me put this in terms for the people who can understand, for those who are fans of Power Rangers or Tokusatsu. Kiba is the leader. Sume is the loner. Hige is the jokester. Blue is the girl. And Toboe is the kid character. That's pretty much it. It's your bog standard 70s hero team, only darker and more serious, yo. Exactly. They are there to fulfill that checklist. When you actually take it apart to those components, it's a little shameless. Character-wise, I wish we had gotten a bit more backstory into some of the wolves. I guess Toboy was one of them. I, I kind of wish we got more backstory of. Seems like, it seems like we know like so little about him other than like he's the little kid wolf. I mean, we get the whole episode where Toboy is, you know... So there's the episode where Toboy, he's making friends with the little girl. And we are given to understand that Toboy is probably the most human of the wolves because he is so young and he is so trusting and so forth. And, well, okay, this all makes sense, this track, but... How did he end up that way, or does he feel that this makes it more difficult for him to pursue paradise? How does this inform his quest for the goal? Anyone? Any writer? You've, you've, we've got some great story writers on this. Somebody could, uh, you know, scribble off a couple of pieces of dialogue. It would really help. This also sort of brings up another point that I want to talk about in that there are some scenes that were meant to be taken seriously that looking back on them just come off as being hilarious. Justin, you just mentioned the episode where Toboe meets the little girl. Like, there's a scene where Toboe kills her bird. And I know it's meant to be emotional showing that Toboe isn't fully human, but it's like the equivalent of if I strangled one of my friend's pet birds, brought it back to him and said, Hey, sorry I killed your bird, man. Hope you accept this. It was. Yeah. Now, I think that scene is very emblematic of his character because there was, like, later on in the series, there was, like, a brief flashback to 
where he was raised by like an old woman who he accidentally killed in like unrestrained like playfulness or whatever. Like, I don't know. If you wanted this scene to be more sad, then why not give us more backstory into who this lady was? Because it's like, when I first saw it, it just felt like, well, damn, that's sad, I guess. One scene in particular that absolutely broke me where I realized I couldn't take the show seriously. Episode 14, and I'm going to bleep this out, but there is a scene where... And it is a scene where the score merely lets the emotion sink in, that we feel sympathy for this character and his loss. Instead, he has a mental breakdown to triumph that of Kylo Ren, making a face that wouldn't be out of place in Kakegurui. And when he makes that face, I just went, Oh god, no, why would you do that? It's just one of the most questionable directorial decisions made within the show. And we complain about the wolves being underdeveloped. We haven't even talked about Cheza, who's just merely there to be a walking MacGuffin item. Ah, uh, yes, Cheza. If you who want... is basically the Google Maps equivalent of what they're supposed to do. She, she just leads the wolves to paradise. And that's basically what she is. She's literally like a plot device. I mean, it almost feels like... She's the pass-the-butter yeah. robot from Rick and Morty. What is my purpose? You lead us to paradise. Oh. Yeah, get used to it. Also, you're gonna get kidnapped a lot. <laughs> it's hysterical because if you ever want to actually have a show where you could legitimately complain about objectification of women, this show would be perfect because the lead female character of the show is quite literally an object. You could have replaced her with a magic compass and it wouldn't have made a difference. That's just how little presence Cheza has in this show. I mean, yeah, she has a really cool scene where she dances with the wolves, but that's the only moment she gets. You know, my friends who watch One Piece like to shit on Nami and say that, like, she doesn't do anything and she could just be replaced by, like, Google Maps and it wouldn't matter. Yeah, the, the, my friends have not seen Wolf's Reign, obviously. That's what I have to say about that. It's positively ridiculous how much ado is made over Cheza's mere existence and how she is this fantastic creature that is needed by all these different factions. The wolves need her to find paradise. The regular humans need her to find cures while it's not really well determined it's never really explained because we don't spend much time with them the nobles think she is this sacred ornament or however again it's badly explained and everyone needs her and everyone must acquire her okay this has been done well before as Evidenced by Anthihimamiya's existence? <laughs> Cheza is not Anthihimamiya. She doesn't even have Anthi's surplus of personality. She has all the personality of the flower that she came from. Just about. And it's a waste. And it's actually kind of sad because the only other female character we truly spend any time with 
granted, she's a little bit of a Faye Valentine retread, but she's all right. We'll get to her, but there's one more character I want to talk about, and that's Darsha. I think that he's underdeveloped as a villain. He had potential, but we just don't do enough with him. I don't know. He's definitely a case of style over substance. I mean, like, you want to get Paradise, that's cool. What are you going to do with it? To quote Tom Baker from Doctor Who, You don't want to take over the universe, do you? No. You wouldn't know what to do with it. You can't shout at it. I will say this. Darsha could have been a wonderful, magnificent bastard of an antagonist. I mentioned earlier he looks like Emo Goro Majima. Give me Emo Majima! It could have been so much fun as a villain, but he's just so dark and brooding and emo, and I guess that makes sense considering that he's voiced by Takia Kuroda, but... (sighs) Darsha's just not interesting. He could have been more interesting if they had leaned into that. I mean, here we have this... He has these cloaks and these robes. He's theatrical. He's flamboyant. He's the emblem of everything that is decadent and corrupt about these nobles. So he's Adam... Lean into that. Give us more. So he's Adam from Skate the Infinity? Well, I guess you can just say that he's all bark, but no bite. Uh, <laughs> that certainly ties into <laughs> the ending, which we'll get into. Yeah, we'll, 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 we will address that. All that stuff about him wanting to bring back his dead wife. Like, maybe if there was more to his character, we could sympathize with him. But as it stands, Darsha is paper thin as a villain. Yeah, that can work. You can totally have a villain whose motivations are simply... I'm evil, and do you see how cool I look? That makes me a great villain. I mean, Crystal Boy from Space Adventure Cobra. Oh, that's a good example. He is a fantastic villain. What's he about? He really doesn't like Cobra, and he's got a big-ass claw on one hand, and he's made of crystal. That's it. He is evil with a cool look, but he is iconic. He is fantastic, and Darsha could have been that. Just lean into it. Just go the extra mile. Choose some scenery. Cackle. What you know, maybe he needed a really elaborate sword. I'm not... You see where I'm going with this? I see where you're going. Um, one of my favorite examples that I reviewed for the show is Bright King Boss from the original 1973 Kishan. He is as basic yeah. a villain as you can get, but by Golly, is he memorable with what he does. His sheer on-screen commanding presence, that diabolical Kenji Utsumi, (laughs) and just the many wacky things that they have him doing later on in the series. Oh, absolutely. Or for that matter, Rao. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rao is thin. What is Rao's motivation? He wants to be the sole master of Hokuto Shinken. And beyond that, we don't have any real information on the guy. We don't have any... Why? He wants to be the most powerful man in the world. Okay. And he looks awesome. And you know, whenever he shows up, things just got serious. 
that was enough for him, for his death to be a national event, for a fictional character's death to be a national event. You can do it. You don't need a deep villain. You just need a good villain. I think that's all that needs to be said about Darsha. A good idea for a villain, but lacking in execution. But there are at least some good characters in this show that I can say are decent. And that are the three human characters of Hub, Cher, and everybody's favorite surly detective, Quent. And that's because Hub and Cher actually have a reason for their actions. Because the story of Hub and Cher is the classic story of Love Gone Sour. A woman driven away from her marriage by her own obsessions with science and research, not making time for her husband. And yet, seeing the two interact with each other, slowly picking up the pieces and trying to put their love back together, I don't think I exaggerate when I say that Hub and Cher's scenes are some of the best in the show. Would you guys agree? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. They, they inject the show with some much-needed humanity. <laughs> There's some actual texture to them. You almost get the impression watching their sequences that they're almost supposed to be in the eyes of the directors and the eyes of the storytellers. See, here is your reason to regret the fact that this world is going to... Likewise with Quent, his whole character is motivated by his hatred of wolves, that he's a surly detective, down on his luck... His life's falling apart, he's addicted to alcohol, and yet we see him change with each encounter. And I wish we had more of that, because every time the wolves encounter something, whether it's a bunch of evil wolves or a giant walrus, I just bring up the walrus because I can never take that scene seriously thanks to Mike Tool's video where he put goofy stock music over the fight. I'll link, I'll link it in the show notes. Oh, it's... No, but it's entirely appropriate to do that because... Oh, dear lord. You cannot convince people that a walrus is a convincing villain. Or force of nature, I should say. Ah, oh, lord. First off, Quint, gritty Zenigata that he is, does work very well. He is spot on for who he is. The character is on note in every appearance and doesn't need to change. A character that they actually nailed and executed. And it's a shame that it took, as I said, edgy Zenigata to be a character they could actually nail. How much simpler do we have to lay it out for you guys, for you guys to just get it to the goal line? I'm going to reiterate this, but Hub, Cher, and Quint are the three bright spots from a story standpoint, and easily the highlight of the main show. I just wish that they did more with the Wolves and Darsha, but I feel that the show just leans so heavily into existentialism that it kind of forgets what kind of story it's supposed to be telling. 
And I wouldn't be offended about the leaning into existentialism if they had something to say about it rather than, see, we just picked up this book on existentialism. We just finished reading the book of Revelation and parts of the Quran. I, I do want to say it, it really does say something about the show when you have the main characters are wolves, but the most interesting characters are the humans. Hub, Cher, and Quint were definitely like the more interesting characters in this story. Like the wolves were pretty much one note, but the humans had like way more growth than any of the wolves. I think it actually says something that the further we get away from our supposed protagonist, Kiba, our lead character, our star character, the further we get away from him, the more we have something to say. Because let's face it, we have not said one word about Kiba that was actually directly discussing his character. Because he is a nothing. Because there's nothing to discuss about Kiba. He's just your generic lead hero. He's determined. He's stoic. He doesn't have a character arc or any other defining personality traits. He wears a jacket. He's a white wolf. He's in the end theme song. Yep. That's all that needs to be said. Uh, there are some right. other things that we could nitpick. Justin, you mentioned that the show is 30 episodes. And there's a reason for those 30 episodes, because the production for this took place during the SARS epidemic of 2003. And as such, they had to postpone production for four weeks. So what did they do? They made four recap episodes in a row. If you were watching this weekly when it was on fan subs or watching it on Adult Swim on a nightly basis, I feel that those four episodes would kill the momentum for you. But we're in 2021 now, and the Bandai release of Wolf's Reign put all the flashback episodes on one disc, so you can skip over that one. I believe the name of the volume is Recollections. And the nice thing about streaming is that you can just skip over those episodes with one click of your mouse. Uh, it's episodes, I believe, 15 through 19 are the flashback episodes. You know, it was a logical decision at the time, but grinding to a halt. As I said, skip the flashback episodes. Only watch them <laughs> if you're curious. Yeah, and it's not even as if they tacked on enough inside of them. I mean, perfect example of a flashback episode, strangely enough, done right, is the From Trey's Kushranada's flashback episode of at the midpoint of Gundam Wing. That is Trey's looking back on all his interactions with these pilots and everything he's witnessed so he can make his decision as to how he's going to go forward with his plan. Not a bad format, not a bad idea. You can do that once. And this would be the part where we cut right to the end, but I want to talk about the ending, because the ending made me feel bad things. So, uh, spoiler alert, people. Skip ahead if you don't want to hear them. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Who wants to go first on this one? <laughs> I have things. 
I'll go first and say that the ending is a real kick in the crotch. Cinematic-wise, it does look beautiful, the ending. And then, after all that's done, we cut to this, like, alternate reality where I guess the wolves are alive now. And then the show just ends. This is one of those shows where all the characters die pointless deaths. But it's not like, say, a Yoshiyuki Tomino show where the characters die in dramatic fashion. Each character death, I'm sure Tensai Okamura wanted you to feel something with each character death. But most of the time, I feel that these deaths, save for one, were pointless. The first one to go is Cher. And they start off with the best death because her death, even on rewatch, actually hit me emotionally. But that's because, as I said, she was the one who ended up with the most development. We meet these characters and then they start killing them off. And it's not like they're killing the characters in ways that reflect the characters themselves. Tobue doesn't die because he's entirely too trusting. Sume doesn't die because he's entirely too stubborn. Hige doesn't die because he, you know, because he can't tell a joke to save his life. Kiba doesn't die because he gets a sudden personality injection. No, nothing about the characters leads to their de- death, nor do their deaths say anything about the character. The next one to go is Toboe in the second stupidest anime death I have ever seen. Because Toboe decides to be an idiot and run into the line of fire between Darsha and Quent. And he gets shot and he dies shortly thereafter trying to save Quent, who dies anyway after getting shot. And nobody learns anything. And nobody achieves anything. And I mean, yes, I suppose nobody's supposed to live past the end of the world, but it was so cheap. The deaths were cheap. And it's not even a cheap death like, okay, let's bring up a real classic pointless death. Like an absolutely, wow, I can't believe they did that, hits you in the feels every time, pointless death. Note. Due to spoilers related to Nate's favorite anime, this segment has been excised in fear of further spoilers. I mentioned that Toboe's death is the second dumbest, the dumbest death that I have ever seen in an anime belongs to Hub. And the way he dies, he falls off an ice ledge that he is hanging on and falls to his death. And here is my reaction to it. Okay, guys, you can jump down and save him. He's right there in front of you. Any one of you can jump down and rescue him. I mean, you're wolves. You can save him, right? I mean, guys, what are you... Sume! Sume, he's right there in front of you. Sume, what are you doing? Go and save him. Oh, my God, you guys are f***ing idiots. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I actually saw it, I actually laughed because that was really stupid. He didn't need to die. Like, why? I mean, I guess it's supposed to be sad because he lost Cher, but like, man, that also didn't, that doesn't feel like it was earned either. If you really want him to die because of that, like, have it in a way that feels like it's earned. You know what I mean? 
It's cheap heat, as they say in wrestling. It's less akin to a tragic death and more akin to something you'd see on MXC slash Takeshi's castle. I mean, we, we established that the wolves have, you know, like, these incredible jumping abilities because they, you know, they hop from rooftop to rooftop and all over the place. We established that physics are kind of a wonky thing wherever they're, you know, wherever they're concerned. This seems like a perfect moment for those wonky physics to take hold unless... Hub is actually, you know, invested in, no, just let me go, in which case his actions would reflect that. No, it actually seems like quite a surprise to him. And then Sume and Blue get jobbed out to Darsha, who, surprise, is also a wolf for reasons. Because he bad guy, and we need a good bad guy twist. Darsha OP, please nerf. And then ultimately... Kiva dies because the plot demanded it after he kills Darsha in a way that is so forgettable I forgot how it happened. And then... I actually do remember. Kiva did not kill Darsha. Oh Darsha oh was about to, like, walk in... Yeah, he was about to walk into paradise and then just, like, like exploded into dust and then died. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's it? That That's how you're gonna kill off your villain? Sure, okay. It'd be more believable if he just got run over by Truck-kun. It really was a matter of, oh, good God, could we just go back to the walrus? Yep. And, and the final ending, visually, I admit, is gorgeous, but it's just such a nothing of an ending. It's just, oh, well, this world has been reborn anew, but it's also corrupt because of Darsha's eyeball or something. When the series wraps up with its intro... Yeah, they just play the opening over again. Yeah. We end up in a place where the wolves are walking through the opening, and we're like, oh, so that's why the opening is in an incongruous uh, setting. Because this is supposed to just keep happening through time. Fantastic. Would you like to actually offer some commentary on that, or is this just supposed to be something that blows our mind? In the words of Crow T. Robot, we hope you have enjoyed No Moral Theater. Let me just tell you, like, I think a week ago I saw that movie Meeks Crossing, and I didn't really like the ending because the movie just ends. Yeah, that's how I kind of felt about Wolf's Rain ending. Like, it looks beautiful, but also... What was the point? Yeah, that's Wolf's Rain for you. I don't want to say that I hated Wolf's Rain. As negative as I've been towards it, I could never bring myself to say that Wolf's Rain is a bad show. I actually think it's somewhat decent. The problem is that it just never reaches its full potential. And I think a big part of it is that it takes itself way too seriously. Like, other shows like Michiko and Hachin, or Samurai Champloo, or any show where our characters are looking for something, whether those shows take a dark or more lighthearted tone, those shows know when to have fun and lighten up the mood. Wolf's Reign, I think the fact that it's just so dour and just unceasingly drab... It just feels like it constantly has to insist upon itself, like it's a Mamoru Oshii project. It's funny that you 
brought it to Oshi because I was actually thinking along those lines myself because Oshi is a master at serious storytelling that is properly serious. When you look at something like, you know, let's compare Wolves to Wolves, Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, that is a dark tale. That is a very serious work that does not let up on, no, we are going to a bad place and we are going to stay in that bad place up until the ending and nobody's coming out of it. And I don't think that's a spoiler. I think that's pretty much from the get-go, this is what we're doing. And you can do that and make it a fantastic work of art, but it's not going to be comfortable. Wolf's Reign isn't willing to go to that place. It is not willing to be art for art's sake like that and challenge its viewer. At the same time, though, it still wants you to treat it like art. That it ends up in this morass of a middle that's just not all that engaging. It's pretty. It has some wonderful components. It's muddled. It's not especially entertaining on a note-for-note basis. It could have been so much better, and it was put together by people who know better. I hesitate to say that it's overrated, since a lot of people, even back then, spoke very positively of the show. And had I watched it when I was first getting into anime, if I took that road... I probably would have appreciated it more saying that, oh, well, it helped me get into anime beyond uh, what was currently airing on Toonami, but watching it with older eyes, it doesn't hold up. There's a lot to like about Wolf's Reign. It's very pretty, very atmospheric, great soundtrack, great voice acting on both sides of the coin, but I don't know. Xavier, what are your final thoughts? A lot of anime from the early 2000s are kind of meh when you look back on some of them. And Wolf's Rain feels like that type of anime. Like, first watch, it's okay. Would I watch it again? Honestly, no. I'd rather watch, like, Michiko and Hachin or Kino's Journey. Or, hell, even that one witch anime that came out, like, last year. Was it? Yeah, yeah, the traveling witch. That's that's the one. Are you sure you're not thinking of flying witch? Yeah, that actually might be the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Kino's journey. That actually came out the year before Wolf's Reign, and even though it's not as visually stunning as Wolf's Reign, it is the superior show. Yeah, it it was it was wandering witch. That's the one I was thinking of. The Aww. show that came out like last year. I want to say. Yeah, it came out last year. But that's gonna do it for Wolf's Reign. Honestly, I think that it would have been more enjoyable had I watched it when I was new to the fandom. But I don't think it holds up all that well. It's one of those shows that you watch once and you enjoy it, but upon rewatch, all of its faults become apparent. But if you do want to watch it, it is available streaming on Funimation and several other places. But as it stands, I just think Wolf's Reign is okay. It's not the masterpiece that some people say it is. It's just 
a decent show, but you can find a ton of other shows by the same people who made Wolf's Reign, mind you, that do what Wolf's Reign did and did it better. But that's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to drop us a like and subscribe. Follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Podbean, and Google Podcasts. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we are going down the very sordid well of isekai anime. Modern isekai anime. And we are going to dig up an isekai anime that asks the age-old question... What happens when you take a professional wrestler and stick him in a magical fantasy land? You get Kemonomichi, an isekai by the creator of Konosuba. So, that alone makes it sound like it's going to be great, right? Well, we'll see if this is a 5-star classic, or if it gets the dreaded dud rating next time. So before we get off, uh, Justin, do you want to plug your channel? Absolutely. Uh, Maze on Otaku, you'll find us on YouTube where you can actually link to us on Facebook. That's myself and Mike. For that matter, you can come out and see us at ColossalCon this year. We will be doing three panels. Uh, the panels will be Grit and Glory, an intro to 80s action anime, uh, Celluloid Dreams, The Art of the Painted Cell, and The Way We Laughed, an intro to vintage comedy. Those all sound like excellent panels, and I hope that they are well attended. Here's hoping. It'll be at ColossalCon in Sandusky, Ohio, first weekend of June. I am so happy the conventions are a thing again. I miss all the cosplay. I miss hosting panels. I miss the dealer's room. But most importantly of all, I miss the drive. Well, my Jag's gassed up and ready. And my Subaru Forester is ready for whatever comes its way. So until then... This is Otaku Nate. This is Justin. And this is Xavier. And we're signing off and saying... So when will it end? So when? When will we meet my friends? So when will it end? So